Your Total Wine & More store is ready to serve you with our always low prices on an incredible 8,000 wines and 2,500 beers. Want it today? Try our same-day delivery or contactless curbside pickup at TotalWine.com. Whether you're grabbing your favorite beer or pouring a glass to enjoy an evening on the deck, Total Wine & More has you covered. Visit any of our 12 stores in Northern Virginia. Welcome to the Indie Film Hustle Podcast, episode number 359. I'm the type of director, if I'd made Cinderella, the audience would immediately be looking for the body in the coach. Alfred Hitchcock. Broadcasting from the back alley in Hollywood, it's the Indie Film Hustle Podcast, where we show you how to survive and thrive as an indie filmmaker in the jungles of the film biz. And here's your host, Alex Ferrari. Welcome, welcome to another episode of the Indie Film Hustle Podcast. I am your humble, humble host, Alex Ferrari. Today's show is sponsored by FilmTools.com. Since 1996, Film Tools has been Hollywood's one-stop shop for all things production. No matter what your filmmaking needs, Film Tools has you covered when you need gear for your next shoot. Anytime I need anything really quickly, I go to Film Tools. They always have every single kind of production nugget and thing that I might need. No matter how small or big it is, they definitely have it. And this week, Film Tools is offering the Indie Film Hustle Tribe 5% off all purchases at FilmTools.com. Just use the coupon code IFHPOD. That's I-F-H-P-O-D at the checkout at filmtools.com. The show is also sponsored by my new book, Rise of the Film Entrepreneur: How to Turn Your Independent Film into a Money-Making Business. In it, I discuss how to actually create the film entrepreneur model and how to make money with your film or films and do it again and again so you can actually build a successful career and business. So if you want to pre-order the book, head over to filmbizbook.com. That's filmbizbook.com. Now, guys, this is Halloween week, so I have two very special episodes for you. The first one up is a returning champion by the name of Stephen Follows, who is an insane statistician for filmmakers and going in and just digging into the numbers of what makes indie film work, how you make money with indie film, what, how, how trends are, and so on. And I know you're asking, Alex, well, why is this guy on the Halloween episode of Indie Film Hustle? Well, it's because he created a report of every single horror movie ever released about how much money they make, what posters they use, what trailers they use, what genres make the most money, what are the budgets of, the, of these genres? And I mean, he goes into so much detail. It is not even funny. So I wanted to bring him back on the show so we could dig deep into this horror report. And at the end, I will give you a link in the show notes on where to go to download this horror report for free. So without any further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Stephen Follows. I'd like to welcome back to the show returning champion, Stephen follows. How you doing, brother? I'm good, thank you. I didn't realize I'd won. So you, I, you've won. I'm the champion. You are a returning champion because you were on the show once before at a very popular episode about uh, what was the best. Uh, it, it was like the reports on independent filmmaking, basically. Correct. Yeah, that particular one was about um, 
we had access to 12,000 uh, unproduced scripts, mostly unproduced scripts, and we were analyzing them for, because uh, we also had the scores from readers as well. So what do readers think a good script looks like? And we went through in lots of different different uh, areas of detail. It was insane. And and like I was saying uh, before we got on the show, uh, Stephen, I mean, I'm such a fan of what you do because I just can't do it. And, and it's just an insane amount of research that you put into these reports that is it is awe-inspiring, honestly. It really is. So uh, that's why I had to have you back on the show because, I, you know, when I, when I first discovered you, well, I, I've known about you for a long time, but when you jumped on the show, we were going to talk about the independent film screenwriting uh, um, and report. But then I, when I went back to your site, I noticed, like, wait a minute, what is this? And there was a horror report on every mm-hmm. horror movie ever made. And I'm like, what is this? <laughs> <laughs> and when I had you, I'm like, listen, you're coming back on the show because we need to talk about this horror report because this is such in, in valuable information on, on arguably one of the most popular genres in all of independent filmmaking without question. And it's so much good information there. So I wanted to dig deep into what you discovered in the horror report. But again, thank you for the work you do, man, because you, you, what you do, nobody else on the planet does. <laughs> yeah, but that that doesn't necessarily mean it's a good thing. It just means it's a unique thing. Uh, <laughs> exactly. It, the fact that you didn't find the report till you went back there for another reason just goes to show how poor I am at marketing. Yes, yes. I can do the research and put it out there, but that's that's about it. Um, but one thing I did want to say before we kick off properly yeah. is just to thank you as well because your um, your community are awesome. I had so many great questions and comments and notes and stuff. People sent me. They can contact me via my. Um, contact page you go straight uh, on my website go straight to me and uh, a lot of people said hey i heard you on the podcast and and there were some really intelligent questions there were some really useful um ideas and thoughts and just a lovely group of people so um yeah keep that up and um, thanks so that. much for having me on oh i appreciate that the tribe is awesome without question and that that specific episode uh, which i will link in the show notes was uh it exploded. People went crazy for it. It really kind of went a little viral. Uh, and it was downloaded, uh, I think, easily tens of thousands of times. So it was it was done. It reached a lot of, a lot of people because people are curious. And it's such a unique angle on what makes an independent film good. Well, let's let's look at the numbers. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's so it's so weird that it's um, unusual in the sense that I have friends who who are either successful in other businesses as investors mm-hmm. or or just run other businesses in other walks of life, and every now and then they hear something about the film industry and they're like, "What? How is that possible? How how is that sustainable?" And I'm like, "It's not, but we just keep doing it." And it's kind of like the, <laughs> the wily coyote running off the cliff. No, no one looked down. Nobody in independent <laughs> film looked down. If one of you does, we're all screwed. You know, and it, it's it's very true. And that's one of the reasons why I launched Film Entrepreneur is because I wanted to give people some sort of blueprint on actually how to build a sustainable business around it and to think differently about independent films. And I really hope today's episode helps in that way by looking at the horror genre as, a, you know, not only as a genre, but as a product and then how you can kind of position yourself to kind of be in the best place to to actually be profitable. Absolutely. And it's one of those things that a lot of independent filmmakers see horror as a uh, a good way in. And mm-hmm. for a few reasons, you know, a lot of filmmakers are, enjoy watching horror films, but also horror films can be made on quite low budgets. Um, mm-hmm. And also it, 
the audience are much more willing to go with lower budgets. In fact, arguably lower budgets uh, can be really beneficial because horror is about what you don't see. Whereas uh, some of these really expensive genres, uh, it's much more about what you do see. And so you can't do Lord of the Rings in your back garden, but you can do a horror film. Uh, you could do it in your shed, you know. Actually, I would love to see Lord of the Rings in a back garden. I mean, I think that if <laughs> anyone listening out there, if you can do that in, in a miniature standpoint, I think it would be genius. <laughs> Given where we are with YouTube nowadays, I'm sure it's been done and people are already <laughs> linking in the show notes. So. <laughs> exactly. So for anybody who doesn't know you and your work, sir, can you tell the audience a little bit about you and what you do? Um, yeah, I'm a, a film data stats person um it's not really a job that's why it's hard to describe um you're the only one so, if you're the only one yeah. i know of <laughs> yeah uh yeah so um, my name is my job title um no so uh i i actually run a, a production company in london and we make uh, we videos and do sort of various bits of marketing stuff for charities uh in the in london and that's my day job and then the kind of um part-time hobby thing that grows out of control has been uh, I've always been really keen on teaching and sharing knowledge and understanding how things work and sort of uh, slightly through a quirk of fate and then keeping going. I have a blog that's been running now for about six years that looks each week. I look at a different topic within the film industry and I try and find the data that could reveal what's going on. And sometimes it's data that we all know, but it's a different spin on it. And sometimes uh, and the most interesting ones are when I'm doing my own primary research or there's new areas that we haven't thought about. So, for example, I um just published an article looking at whether first-time directors are a financial risk compared to more experienced directors. Yeah, um, I actually saw that. I saw that fly through my feed. Uh, so, uh, so, and what's the and what's the answer, sir? Yeah, they're slightly more risky, but only not by very much, and certainly not by the amount the industry says. And I think mm -hmm. that a lot of what I find uh, actually reflects that truth, which is. Most stereotypes, most cliches, most um, urban myths have uh, industry myths have some germ or idea or seed of not of truth in them but they're blown all out of proportion and uh, to the detriment of many people and uh what that causes is that you end up with disenfranchising all sorts of people in all sorts of ways um mm -hmm. so i think what i like is to is to go back and have a look at the data and say well is, is this true and if so to what extent and if so why you know what is it about that that makes um First-time directors more experience, uh, more of a risk or less of a risk, and and where as well because we talk about the film industry if it's one, as if it's one thing, but you can't lump in a small film and a and a you know Hobbs and Shaw type movie. You can't lump in different genres and different audiences and also different platforms. So there's so many different ways of cutting up what we do, and we call it one industry that um, you always have to get under the surface. There's no one truth that's going to work for all films in all places. Yeah, th that's the one thing I find. So uh, I've, in, in my tenure, uh, over 20-odd years in the business, that I've found so just irritating is that whole, that kind of those the industry myths. Like I remember a time where I was out there pitching a female-led action movie. And all I heard was, oh, they don't make money. They don't make money. They don't make money. And now they're making money. <laughs> you know, it's like, totally. I, it's like ridiculous. Or there was no Latino, you know, Latino or, or people of color don't direct. They just, their movies don't do well. Like how ridiculous is that? And yet the last five out of six best Oscar winners were, were by Latinos. <laughs> 
Yeah, and that's, uh, that's uh, the other directors. Thing. Yeah, something something could have been true, and at one point, yeah, absolutely, one yeah, exactly, and it might might be true for a good reason. No, it might be true just because enough you measure enough things, you're going to get some bizarre correlations. You know, you flip a coin enough, you're going to get twenty heads in a row. That doesn't mean it's a biased <laughs> coin. And so, for example, pirate movies didn't work. Everyone knew pirate movies yep. failed until they were the biggest thing ever. Mm-hmm. And swords and so, sandals, swords and sandals movies as well. Exactly. It's all cyclical like that. Um, and so, yeah, it, it's one of those things that I'm really interested in trying to understand why these industry uh, myths and, and systems are the way they are so that we can all work out what to learn from them. Because we we can't just follow the facts because, first of all, the facts aren't clear in all cases. And then second of all, um, we're in this because we love it. And uh, I often say I often talk about this because I think anyone who succeeds in film could have a far better career and far easier time and better working hours, more certainty if they went in almost any other field. And yeah, <laughs> we all love this. We're all slightly mad. And mm-hmm. that's great. But given that you're being mad doesn't mean you have to be crazy about it. You know, like if you're going to go off and make a film and put far too much time and energy into it, that doesn't mean you just do it any way you want. Do it the smart way because you're much more likely to achieve the the goals that you set out for yourself and say are important. Um, right. And I think that's what data can do. It can't tell you what to do, but it can say, given that you want to do X, what's the smart way of doing X? Right. And again, and, and that's what I that's what I love about your work is that you're able to look at you're, you're, you're basically having filmmakers look at the film industry differently. You're out, you're thinking outside the box a little bit and you're going at it through data. You're like, there's like, look, there's no argument here. This is the data and this is what the data says. I don't care what anybody else says. I don't care what the myths are. This is what the data says. And this kind of movie is doing this money and this, how much it's done over the last 500 years or, or excuse me, 50 <laughs> years uh, or so on. And, and, and you're thinking about it differently, and that's what I, I hope film entrepreneurs do: is they start thinking about filmmaking as as a completely different beast than what they were taught in school or what the industry even tells them uh, totally, is totally. is the reality. And and also the thing is, uh, two things to say about that as well, which I, I totally agree. One is that even if someone says to you, "This isn't going to make money," or "These things don't normally work," or "It's a bigger mm-hmm. risk than something else," doesn't mean you shouldn't do it. You know what you do with that information is up to you. Like all I'm doing is saying this has been the case, and you should follow your heart. You should do what you know is right. And the the second thing to say is that. Um, and if we only did what worked before, we'd never have any innovation. We'd never have anything different. And God knows in the creative fields, you can reinvent anything. You know, you can have films that are hugely derivative that are very successful. You can have original films that are very bad. There's nothing to say that because it hasn't happened, it won't happen in the future. The key is to understand why the trends are the way they are and then feed that into your own machine in your head about what well, is what I care about. This is what I know. This is what I can do differently and then make informed choices for yourself. Right. I mean, uh, horror films that have been extremely successful, like Paranormal Activity or uh, Blair Witch, which are the two that everyone uses constantly uh, <laughs> as a reference point. I'm like, look, all horror movies make this money. No, they don't. But uh, But on paper, both those films sound horrific. And I don't mean that yeah. in a good way. They, they, they sound like absolute failures on paper. Like if you would have come to me and told me, hey, I'm going to make a movie about, you know, shot really low budge, this, this, or this. Back then, everybody in traditional thinking would have said, absolutely not. That's never going to work. And it's never going to make any money. Uh, you're never going to see this in a theater. But yet, it's, they're, they're two of the most successful films of, of all time in the genre. For a reason. Totally. 
Totally. And there's a survivorship bias there as well. You know, found footage films, there's quite a lot of them made because they're so cheap to make. So it's not surprising that one of the most successful films will be a found footage film. It doesn't mean it's not an important part of it. It just means if you have 10,000 of any type of film made, one or two of them are going to be wildly successful. Mm -hmm. Um, Whereas if you're setting out to make the 10,000th and first film, uh, do you have a better chance than if you made a different type of film and maybe this other type of film doesn't have any of these outliers that give you really sexy numbers but you know three quarters of them make money what's what's your risk profile what do you want to do do you want to shoot for the moon and buy a lottery ticket or do you want to do something consistently and safely and they're all valid answers as i said everything we're doing is stupid so there's no such thing as like oh you you shouldn't have done that it's like no 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 no. we've all run away to join the circus it's just you know how we live in that circus and what we do is totally up to our own passion and interest no with without quite i love that like you know buy a lottery ticket i think most independent filmmakers do buy a lottery ticket every time Every single time out, they're just like, well, this is going to be, I'm going to get into Sundance and this is going to make it and, and boom, boom, boom. And I'm off and running where you and I both know that that's not the way this business runs. Uh, and there is no other business. And I've, I've said this multiple times. There is no other business in the world that I know of that will spend $300,000, $500,000 on a product and yet do not have a plan to market and sell that product or recoup its investment. A, a okay. solid plan. Is, am I and wrong? Then, and, no, you're totally right. And, and also, each of these films is a prototype. You know, the most derivative film is still somewhat of a prototype. Maybe not. Maybe, maybe the, the 20th version of something, maybe less of a prototype. But fundamentally, what business spends all this massive amount of money on prototypes without distribution, without marketing plans, distribution plans, and then has to go back to the drawing board again? We're almost all businesses, if you look at the opposite, which is drug companies, where they spend a fortune to make the first pill, and then they can churn them out for next to nothing and recoup their R&D costs, you know. We, we have the first half of that and not the second half because you have a successful film, especially an indie film. Well done. What's next? Oh, yeah, I'm going to rip off all this up, start again. <laughs> exactly. Now, are you familiar with the Blue Ocean, Red Ocean theory? No, 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 I'm not. So there's a book called Blue Ocean, Red Ocean. Uh, and the concept is, and this is for entrepreneurs, but I, I, I'm, I, as a film entrepreneur, I'm actually applying it to filmmaking. And I think this, when you said 10,001, of this kind of genre film, like let's say the found footage film, when Paranormal Activity and actually when Blair Witch showed up, they were the first, uh, one of the first, if not the first, um, to to be in that ocean. That ocean would be we would call a blue ocean, which is an ocean that has plenty of fish in it, no competition because nobody is there. While the red ocean would be, let's say, a slasher film where there's tons of movies being made or a ghost movie, tons of, of movies in that space are being made. So there's a lot that, you know, there's hundreds of those movies bumped out a year. So there's a lot more competition for that audience, for that customer, because they are, you know, that's why there's blood in the water because it's just like, a, it's a feeding frenzy there. So there is a lot of fish, but there's also a lot of competition and everyone's just killing each other trying to get to that, to those customers. Where if you go with a blue ocean strategy, you build a product that, is going to be a little riskier, possibly. But if you do it more intelligently using data, like we're going to talk about, uh, you're 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 able to 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 um, to shave off the risk as much. And also, if it hits, you're alone. So that's why, like when Paranormal Activity showed up, there was nothing like it before. It, it, but it also the risk of it was nothing. It cost twenty seven thousand dollars. 
So why not try to do something in the blue ocean? Because if it does pop, great. And if it doesn't pop, you still have lost, you know, if you keep, keep that overhead low, you're able to uh, still recoup that money faster. Does that make any sense? Yeah, totally. And I think also you have to remember, if you're thinking purely about horror, you need to think about um, what is it that people want from low budget horror? They want something they've never seen before. Mm -hmm. And so if you're just iterating on what someone else has done, okay, if, if you truly made it a little bit better. But fundamentally, if you're just iterating, you need to have another edge. You know, you need to have stars, you need to have distribution, mm -hmm. you need to have something or maybe the fourth film in a series. Okay, fine. But otherwise, if you really want to succeed, you need some sort of clever hook that is something that just gets in people's brains and go, ha, huh. you know, like things like The Purge or Saw, such great, simple, mm -hmm. Ideas that can be expressed in a sentence or two, or Blair Witch or Paranormal, which is about the the uncomfortable experience of I don't know what's going to happen. I literally mm -hmm. don't know what's going to happen because I have no template for this. Arguably, horror is the one that's most open to that, and the least would be sort of family films, anything with children, where everybody wants to know what's going to happen. Like right. everybody, you need to know the parents need to know so the kids aren't going to be scared. It, also, you can't even have tension for very long because for kids that's an age and that's terrifying. So. Arguably, in horror, you should be going for the thing that no one else is doing, and you should do it wholly originally and unusually, because that's likely to insulate you or help you at least in getting to break out from the crowd of horror films. Right, and and I I remember uh, you know I always I always tell people to sub niche you know that film entrepreneur should sub niche and just niche down. So if you're going to be in horror, that's a niche. Then you go, okay, what kind of horror movie are you going to make? Oh, I'm going to make a slasher film. Okay. Okay, that's a, that's a niche. But then there's still a lot of competition. And they're sort of like, why don't you try to make an 80s slasher film? Well, that's a little bit smaller genre, which will open up to a lot of other people. But there's a group of of people or, or of, the, of that niche who want to see 80s style horror and then generate and do a film in that genre if that's so again you're 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 just bettering your chances of reaching an audience especially on a on a low budget horror movie and especially if you're going to try to market it and sell it yourself does that make sense yeah absolutely i mean there's a there's a business concept called category of one Mm -hmm. which is this idea that you need to create a new type of thing. So I think the the iconic example everyone gives is Light Beers, where uh, Miller Light created it. You know, you just go, it didn't exist, and now it does. And actually, it's better to be number one in a new marketplace than it is to be 20th or even second yes. in an existing one. And yeah, so, so if you – I mean, that's one of the things that really worked – one of the many things that worked with Shaun of the Dead was that it advertised itself as a zom rom-com, uh, <laughs> a zombie romantic comedy. And, of course, there have been other, other films in the past that have used those elements but it had that unique kind of no no honestly it's all three genres and it sold itself very well now as I said, i'm not saying it invented the category but it's certainly more iconic than it's a zombie film or it's a rom-com with zombies you know so um i think yeah and it's especially important with horror because i mean how i got how i got into this i mean i, I don't particularly watch that many horror films i don't i don't mind horror films it's just and i, I there are some i really like things like cabin in the woods really really interesting to me mm -hmm. but um it just in and of itself being scared or having that tension isn't isn't my jam that isn't what mm -hmm. i want mm -hmm. um but what really got me into it was i was doing research looking at um how successful films were based around their critics and audience scores so what do film critics think of a movie and how likely is it to make money 
and what do uh, film audiences um as measured i think by the imdb score the audience score what do they well, how what's the connection between that and profitability i was using um models that actually work out how much money in dollars and cents each movie is likely to have made um which is, might be a bit tricky film to film but overall it's pretty accurate mm-hmm. and correlating it with these things and i discovered that most genres in fact all but one uh, there's a pretty strong correlation between how good a movie is and how how much money it makes <laughs> right horror has almost none like it, ha- it has a correlation but like yep. i can't remember the numbers but like the the for most genres it was sort of it's measured on a sort of um one to minus to minus one where one would be an exact correlation better movie is the more money it makes uh, minus one would be the reverse so the more money it, uh, the more money it makes the worse it tends to be and anything uh, below about 0.2 or um and or above 0. Uh, minus 2 0. 0.2 uh it tends to be insignificant statistically and it is about 0. 0.2 for horror films and it's like 0. 0.8 0. 0.9 for every other genre it's like a world of difference and so it's so interesting that, 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 i is. mean I, i've thought about it i mean as you're saying it it's obvious but yet i really never sat down and go you know horror is the only genre that if if it's a bad movie it could still make a lot of money. And actually, yeah. sometimes the worse the movie, the the more money it makes. Hence, Sharknado's entire world. Ex- well, exactly. But the key thing is that on average, across all movies, it doesn't matter. It just, for every single genre, it matters to some degree and to a large degree. But mm-hmm. to horror, it's kind of irrelevant. And I used The Purge <laughs> a moment ago. The right. Purge is... Everybody agrees it's a bad movie. Like, I, and this isn't this isn't my subjective opinion. It's like you look at the reviews from from critics, and they're like, "Yeah, it's not very good." Critics don't like horror films generally, but okay. So let's move to audiences. Audiences generally give it middling reviews. Like, it's there's some people out there will love it, but when you compare it to movies that get across the board great scores and things, it's not, it's nowhere close. But how many and are yeah. there? How many are there? There's like three or four of them. Uh, I don't know. I haven't I kept think, up. Okay. Like, uh, I know there's at least I'm, three. I think there'll be another one by the time we finish the recording. Um, like, <laughs> of course. But why not? I, I don't mean that in any kind of. And I, I'm not being pejorative here. Yeah. Great. Like, if that's what people want, so people aren't going to it for quality. But then, if you look at, um, I'm sure if you did this analysis with the quality of the food of a restaurant and how successful it is, hmm. you would find certain things like McDonald's, where even if you really like it, no one is saying this is great quality. They're saying, yeah, I, don't, I like this, but there are other factors going on. And in that case, it might be the marketing. It might be the convenience. Obviously price plays a big part in that. Um, and so get, when I was doing this analysis between critics ratings and profitability, I was thinking, okay, well, if, if it doesn't matter, if it's any good, if everyone agrees, it doesn't matter. What does matter? And I, I that just kind of stuck in my brain for a while and I just mm-hmm. couldn't get it out. And I couldn't stop thinking about, well, it's not like there'll be one answer you know um but there's got to be patterns and, and and arguably if the horror audience don't care how much a film costs i mean obviously they do to some degree but of all genres they care the least and if they don't care if it's any good then maybe they're being a bit more uh maybe that what their intentions are easier to read as to what they do want from a horror film uh and so that just took me down the path of saying okay well Obviously, you have to start with how many horror films are there and what type are they, and you have to categorize them and all sorts of things. And then I just sort of I kind of grew. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and it got to the point where I had completed research on 
most if not all parts of the of the film value chain so right from development of films what types they are adaptations and titles of movies through to financing and obviously the whole production uh, process and post-production and also marketing distribution and all the different windows of release um, and festivals and things and so by the end I sort of I hadn't realized like I'd sort of done all of that and um yeah, so then in the end, I put it together as a report that's, I don't know, a couple of hundred pages and it's available on pay what you want. It's a minimum mm-hmm. of a pound, which is about a dollar now. It'll mm-hmm. be about half a dollar in a few weeks, and <laughs> a few cents after Brexit. Um, but uh, yeah, it's a pay what you want model. And I just thought, you know what, that's especially with horror. Like, can you imagine selling a report for a thousand dollars and like the only people that would buy it would be studios and the actual people who need this, who are going to change what they're doing are independent filmmakers and um yeah. So that's awesome. Yeah. It's been a really interesting journey. Um, now what, now what is the genre in, in, what is the horror genre that is the most successful, you know, as far as box office return or just return on investment, the sub genre in horrors like paranormal yeah, well, or things. Well, let's, let's, you know, let's start by talking about what is horror because, um, you know, I, I, I was expecting some subjective complicated questions. I wasn't expecting my first question to be what's a horror film. Mm-hmm. And I think I even went to Reddit and, and said, Hey guys, what's a horror film? And everyone went, Oh my God, you can't, you know, who knows? And everyone argues. And, and there's films like, um, uh, Hugh Jackman's Van Helsing, where mm. I, I, I looked at maybe 20 different, uh, film listing sites and about half said it was a horror half said That's it was not a horror film at all well half of them say it is um That's insane it's a it's a it's a it's an action it's like a, a thrill an action thriller and not even a thriller it's kind of like a, just a a popcorn action film that happens to have some monsters in it there's nothing really scary in it if i remember correctly i remember it being a horrible movie <laughs> <laughs> that i okay. do remember <laughs> what about i am legend Ooh, that's a rough one, man. You see, now that one is a hybrid of an action horror film. I feel so. That is a horror. Yeah, my, my um, based when when I did the research. So this may be not true for the last couple of years, but my understanding was that's the most expensive horror film ever made. No one, everyone agrees is a horror film. But anyway, so working out what a horror film was was wasn't the easiest. But then, as we talked about, that wasn't enough. I had to subclassify. I had to work out within that what types of films are out there. So. Uh, through all sorts of different methods, which I'm happy to talk about, but aren't really that important. Mm -hmm. I ended up coming up with six different subcategories of horror, um, Mm -hmm. which overlap. So there are films that do more than one. So we had found footage, killer, paranormal, gore and disturbing. That's one, uh, psychological, and then monsters. Okay. And it's interesting because you, uh, you see very clear patterns with, uh, budget. So, Found footage movies tends to be the the um, most of them are on the lowest budget, whereas monster movies, um, perhaps unsurprisingly, because you need to pay for the monster, mm-hmm. tend to be more expensive. Mm-hmm. Um, and what that does is that also somewhat leads the profitability answer. So, found footage um, movies, uh, I calculate that about four out of five uh, had made pro- had made a profit with mm-hmm. one in very very important caveat one important caveat which is about to disappoint every I know. independent filmmaker i know exactly what it's going to be i know exactly what it's going to be that got into theaters like it gets into theaters if it's in theaters then four out of five of those fan footage films um they make a profit of some kind well some let me uh, but let me ask you a question how much does uh the blair witch and paranormal acti- activity skew those numbers well, that's a good question. So I've tried to account for that. Um, 
and what I'm looking for is is uh, in some cases averages, some cases medians. It's not just those films. But at the same time, and, and those films, by the way, just as a data analysis thing, are really annoying because they do skew numbers massively. Oh, yeah, because they're, uh, they're anomalies. They're both anomalies. That, well, see, that's the question, right? So is it? It's like saying, um, what's the return on buying a lottery ticket? If you just in- exclude all the lottery winners because they're the unusual ones, then you haven't got a true summary of the market. So it, mm. both including and excluding them were, was complicated. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't remember how I accounted for this, but I definitely didn't just – average all of them because um that were, oh yeah that's right i looked at how many of them that's right i looked at how many of them were likely to have made money and how many of them were likely to have made a small amount of profit or a small, small loss or a likely a big loss and so those two would have just counted for two you know one each it wouldn't have been okay so paranormal paranormal activity made twenty thousand percent of its budget back and that just skews the numbers um but we shouldn't necessarily exclude them you know if 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 it is a lottery win, then um, to some degree, it is out there as a prize. Um, one one thing that actually I wanted to say is something that you said earlier on, which I think is uh, what you said was absolutely right. And I think there's one extra note to make on it. You said mm-hmm. if independent filmmakers want to make buy a lottery ticket, then that's fine. Absolutely. I totally agree with that. And in fact, arguably, that's the essence of being an artist and a filmmaker is to take this <laughs> and pull your heart. But the key is, do they sell it as a lottery ticket? Mm, you know, they don't they never do they never do they never See, that's the bit where you fall down it's not making the movie that won't make any money that's fine that's art you know good luck to you promising that it'll make the paranormal activity that's money. A, ah, but, but listen talking. every single film business plan you have ever seen that has a it's a horror movie blair witch paranormal activity are in the models am i wrong every single one uh, I've I've seen them a disproportionate number of low budget ones and ones that weren't made, but and I've seen them in almost all of them. But if I were an investor, or and and I do occasionally uh, advise investors who are uh, people I know or friends of friends or whatever, and and if someone says I'm making a horror film and I turn to their comps and they have five comps and two of them are those ones, I just (laughs) close the report and say there's no point investing because they're not being honest. It doesn't mean don't mention them, but put them in a separate box going by, you know, here are the five, 10 comps that we think are relevant. By the way, there is a secret special lottery also involved in this. That it Um, could be this. Exactly. And it's not untrue. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just that you can't make that out to be the everyday. And the thing is the investors know that. And they actually, if you're honest with them, they don't, they're not, they're not really investing with you to make money because people who want to make money don't invest it in film. Um, they're doing it because they want to have a really good uh, ride or they want to, they feel like the movie should be made or they believe in you and they want to have the best investment that's possible given those conditions. Mm-hmm. But if it's purely about profit, I mean, no one in the right mind says, Oh, you're only interested in profit. I know film, you know, uh, it's, it's just not that it's there's there. It's, it's such an unknown quantity when you're making a film and actually trying to regenerate revenue to, because it's such an expensive art form in general, it's one of the most expensive art forms on the planet. Uh, it, you have to you have to generate an ROI on your film, and it is very difficult to quantify it because there's too many variables in it. Like if you make a, a widget, you take the widget to market and you sell the widget for nine ninety nine, and the widget costs you two fifty, and you have a marketing plan and you put it out into the marketplace, and there you go, and that that's the widget. Films aren't widgets. Films are massive conglomerations of widgets being moved and then there's outside forces constantly shaping it and let's not even talk about 
egos and drama <laughs> and politics and distribution. I mean, there's so many variables. Uh, again, that's why I feel that a film entrepreneur method or model is a little bit more stable because you look at it as multiple revenue streams and multiple things that you can do off of one movie. And I, and a lot of times the movie doesn't even have to make money for you to be able to generate money because you're building a business around the movie. But that's a whole other conversation. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I, yeah, I, I agree with you. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, it's one of those things where it's a, it's rich and poor. So a uh, feast and famine. So if your if your found footage film makes it into theaters, which mm-hmm. uh, and I don't just mean one theater that your cousin owns. I mean like it's got a distributor, <laughs> it's got a release, it's got marketing. Then actually you, you're probably onto a good uh, chance of making the original budget back. Obviously that's heavily skewed by the fact that you probably spent less to make it than most you know most of the films, but still profits a profit. Um, but the, the number of horror films is going through the roof. And actually, the percentage of horror films that actually make it into theaters is declining quite considerably. And that's especially considering the fact that um, more and more films are being released in theaters every year. Um, we're on sort of seven, eight hundred in the US and eight, nine hundred a year in the UK, which is bonkers, mm-hmm, just mm-hmm. completely mad. Yes, we're coming up to like 20, 20 a week, 20 new movies every week. Uh, and really what we're talking about is that the 50 top grossing movies of all of each year account for 75% of the box office, both in America and in Britain. So really that's the top movie each week. So Hobbs and Shaw comes out this week, plus 19 other movies you've never heard of next week, another whole 20 and Hobbs and Shaw is still out. And then the new, and the new, whatever studio movie that it wants to, you know, the Avengers yeah. or something like that comes out. Yeah, 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 exactly. It's insane. So, so what is the most profitable um, uh, subgenre, a uh, paranormal. Uh, like so par- it, it was found footage. So found footage was the most profitable. Um, but also that's sort of the, the type of horror film. Uh, there's also, you could look at them as sort of, um, genres as well, like hybrid genres, like horror comedy or horror action. And interestingly, uh, horror comedy and horror romance were the marginally the most profitable, really? not especially, but marginally. But again, if you look at the other end of the spectrum, horror fantasy and horror action were the least, but they're the most expensive. So it's, it's a horror, it's a horror romance, which is, is very rare. They're rare. There are not a lot of them out there. So that, I mean, horror comedies and horror romances are rare generally. And and there is that myth in the industry that horror comedies make no money. Yeah. And well, proportionally they do, but I tell you why. And it comes down to one thing that horror, um, uh, it's just two letters long. Mm-hmm. And it's it's something that horror uh, filmmakers almost never think about. Mm-hmm. And yet, when when you think about it, you're like, actually, that makes complete sense. Um, I'm I'm deliberately trailing it here. Can you guess what it is? I don't. Two letters long. No. TV. Uh, yeah. TV. So if you make some blood splattered horrific film, and it, fine, uh, how many TV channels can that be broadcast on? Conversely, mm-hmm. if you make a horror comedy that's a bit more comedy than horror. It's going to be on more TV channels. It's going to be on more slots. It's going to be able to travel more. Mm. Um, so I'm not saying do that. I'm not giving any specific advice. Um, but it's definitely, if you're looking for longevity, if you're looking for a long tail of income, if you're looking for more territories and things like that, television uh, is a big factor. And television has a very particular type of horror film it wants. And it may not be what horror fans want as well. As I go through this, uh, it may be sort of sacrilegious to horror fans who are like, no, this is watering stuff down and whatever. And, and maybe that's right. Maybe it is. Um, 
No, but, I mean, like a I horror, mean, ro- but a horror romance and a horror comedy by its nature is a watered down version of a horror movie. It's not a straight up slasher. You know, if it's a little bit funny and stuff, it's it could still be gory, but it's a completely different animal. So it's kind of yeah. watering it down. In general. Like that's why Shaun of the Dead is is probably one of the more successful. Uh, well, it's, I think it's probably the most successful horror comedy of all time, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, yeah, I mean, I can't remember off the top of my head, but it certainly sounds credible to me. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. It could be. It certainly did incredible numbers and uh, it's also a brilliant film. It is a brilliant um, film. <laughs> uh, so yeah so you look at certain kinds of uh films do well uh on television so for example uh, monster movies don't tend to do as well as psychological uh movies and that maybe that's mm-hmm. because monster movies are slightly more gory and slightly more um uh scary and you and you kind of don't want to go i mean if you're just thinking about television you don't want to go too um scary when it comes to blood and gore and crucially you really don't want to have a lot of sex and nudity so um Again, I can explain the methods, but just go with it for now. Uh, I managed to categorize most of the movies to how much sort of sex and nudity they had in them mm. on a scale of one to ten. And once you get to like, I don't know, six or seven, you're getting far fewer um, uh, broadcasts on television. You know, the ideal spot was sort of three, four, five, six out of ten. So obviously it needs to deliver something. You don't want to make it completely sanitized. But at the same time, if it's if it's got, you know, quite hardcore nudity or sex in it it's going to preclude certain channels and certain times on other channels and so mm-hmm. if you are thinking this purely from a financial point of view and you think you know what theatrical is unlikely and also maybe it won't make much money and it'll have high costs but television is where i'm going to get to then you need to make sure that you're not breaking the rules and making it something that television just can't show what i find what i find so wonderful about this conversation is that we're looking at a horror movie as a product and at where can we distribute this widget to as many places as humanly possible to return on to get an ROI, to make money, to generate revenue. And by doing this, I mean, look, art is one thing and business is another thing. Uh, but like I say all the time, the word business has twice as many letters as the word show. Um, so there's a reason for that. And by thinking about your film as like, okay, well, I want to be able to make as much money as I can with this. So what genre of horror, what, where can I go? How much nudity can I have in it? And it could be like, you know what, I want to I want to focus on this super niche audience that I'm going to self-distribute. And they want to see a lot of nudity and a lot of gore. And that's, what, that's the angle I'm going to. Understanding, though, that this blocks out all these other potential revenue streams. Well, you that's have to walk, it, exactly. You have to walk into it knowing that and not to be... Oops, what do you mean? I spent a half a million dollars on a blood fest and I can't return and I can't get any ROI. I can't I can't get any money back because the audience that I focused it on can't generate the kind of revenue that this budget needs to generate in order for it to be a successful film. So there's always Absolutely. that balancing. It's, that's always that balancing act. I mean, I think, you know, what an artist, amongst the things an artist does is that they deal with compromises, you know, or they deal with what's being presented to them. So here's your location. Here's your line to dialogue. How are you going to turn this into something that's uniquely yours? Why is it Tarantino different from Wes Anderson? Mm -hmm. It's not just the situations they're in. It's also how they respond to them. And so there is a a real... um, opportunity and need for artists and filmmakers to be artists to bring their artist selves to the business side of things and say okay mm-hmm. exactly as you laid out here are two things i want to do i want to have this this uh, level of nudity for this audience or for this purpose but actually there's this other business reason not to okay 
compromise, weigh it up. Actually, I'm going to make sure I do one of them really well because it doesn't matter which, but I, if I water it down, it won't work. Or actually, no, there is a middle ground where I can do both versions or whatever it would be. Or, or that- but, but I didn't mean to interrupt you, but or you could no, just or, or you could just drop the budget from 500,000 to 50,000 and do whatever the heck you want because that audience that you're focusing on can generate potentially has the that has the potential to generate the revenue for you to make your money back and actually be a profitable film at a half a million dollars being a hardcore slasher film with you know it's going to be with a lot of nudity you're just cutting off a lot of revenue streams so it's it's all about what you want to do and what you want the end game to be for your film you could go you could do whatever you want you could do a middle ground like you said or you can change the game you know, it's like if I'm going to spend half a million, I'm going to have to do X, X, Y, and Z in order to get that money back. Unless it's daddy's money and then don't worry about it. Just go have fun. <laughs> yeah, but it, true. But although you can't make a career out of that, unless daddy's no. that rich. And I yes. think that's the thing is that I've seen <laughs> There's only a few daddies that rich. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that's – I've seen – filmmakers who've managed to sort of basically skip the first step they've been they've managed to jump in at a higher level and okay on the one hand they've managed to get further faster great but they're not ready for that you know mm-hmm. let's say that we could skip it so that you could you could be one of the i don't know 10 people who are however many are on the track for the olympic gold medal 100 meters you're right. not going to win you're going to look like an idiot and you're going to pull a muscle and yes. whereas if you you practice and you earn your way up there and you get there through grit and obviously you still need money you still need support you know in the in the analogy of training you know there are certain sports like rowing or ice skating where you need money and you need support and you need to be driven to these things and whatever but at the end of the day if you're earning your way forward then you'll be prepared when you're in the final you will have earned it and you'll be able to be there year on year on year if you've bought your way in i mean i'm sure you can pay enough to race usain bolt i'm sure there is a price but that doesn't mean you'll win it doesn't mean you can do it again no, there's no question. And, I, and I've seen, I mean, working in post-production for as many years as I have, I've seen so many filmmakers who got their first movie was a $5 million movie, but they had never set foot on, on a set before. And you're like, you, why would you do that? Why would you go up to the plate and face down a major league pitcher and try <laughs> to swing the bat when you have never picked up a bat before, it's just lunacy. It's more ego than anything else. It's insane. and it's not sustainable. It, well, you can't not only, keep doing it. Well, you could only, you basically you have one shot. So I promise you, if you get a five million dollar budget for your first film and it dies, I promise you, nobody else is going to give you money. And because you didn't hustle your way up there and you just kind of skipped the line, you don't have anything to. You, you don't have any um, foundation to to, to kind of land on. In other words, um, the armor that you put on from hustling and grinding year after year in this business, that's what helps you withstand, withstand blows like that. But if you just skip the line and just go, hey, guys, I'm here, the first brisk wind that comes, you're done. Does that make and sense? It's gonna feel, yeah, totally. And you're going to feel awful like you're gonna feel like a cheat you're gonna yeah. feel like you don't know what you're doing like you're a fraud and the real truth is everyone feels like that constantly and you're yes. never gonna feel like aha i know what i'm doing but at least in your case it will be slightly true and it feels really um it just sucks it really sucks mm-hmm. whereas if you earn your way there and someone and you have a a failure or something's unfair or just someone's unfair to you you'll be much 
stronger to be able to shake it off. Like you said, you have to earn your armor, you know, because then it's yours and it fits you and it's like a shell rather than just buying someone else's because it won't fit and it won't last. I mean, at this point um, in the game, I have rhinoceros hide. Um, <laughs> you know, I've got shrapnel left and right. I mean, it, that, but, you know, trust me, I wish I would have not had to go through all of this, uh, but it's who I am and it makes me so resilient to so many you know, poundings that this business gives you day in and day out. And, you know, everyone listening, if you do have an opportunity, like if I, I told people all the time, like if someone gave me a million dollars right now to make a movie, I would tell them, I go, look, uh, and it was a blanket, it was a blank check. Here's a million dollars that you can make whatever movie you want. I would make 10 movies. I would make 10 $100,000 movies because on a business standpoint and on a creative standpoint, I can I can diversify my portfolio and the chances of one of those movies hitting or making enough money to cover all of them is better. Or if each one of them makes $125,000, which is a lot less to make a million dollars off of one, guess what? You're a profitable film. You're, you, you made money. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. But let me ask you this. Let's yeah. say that someone gave you the million dollars and they didn't mention movies. Would you, as Alex, how much, of, if any, of that money would you actually spend on movies? <laughs> you know, look, but you know what? But this is my business. So like, even if I, yeah, like if I had a million dollars, could I take some of that money and build out other parts of my indie film hustle business? No, or? no, 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 no. That's not movies. That's business investment. That's, that's reinvesting in a, in a presumably successful business. That don't count. Oh, I'm talking about you making movies. Like of them, someone gives, you just inherit a million dollars, all tax free, all taxes paid. How much do you as Alex actually put into making a movie yourself? Uh, I would, I would make some, I would make a movie or two. There's no question I would do that because I've, I mean, I've, I've, I make movies all the time. And if I had the money and the money was not an issue, you know, my first two films were made for under $10,000 each and they were fairly, and they were fairly successful for at that budget range without question. So if I had a hundred thousand dollars, I would probably make a couple, a couple films. I would make a two, I would make two $50,000 movies. Absolutely. And I'll make it, I would do it without question. Would I invest the entire million if it's the only million? No, that's stupid. That's that's Your second million, right? No, I that's the second million. I would, slo- I would slowly, I would slowly, you know, I would take 10 or 20% of that money and make movies and see what happens. Why not? But you've got 80% sitting somewhere in 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 bonds or gold or whatever else you <laughs> whatever want people do with money yeah film whatever no whatever <laughs> yeah whatever rich people do with money we have no idea what that no, is no they don't come to us for obvious reasons <laughs> well, you, the old saying about uh, the film industry is a way to make a small fortune in the film yes, industry yes. is to start with a large fortune <laughs> and i think that's what you need to do but I, you know true. i think of it as golf money you know money that people spend playing golf no one says, what's my ROI on, my ROI on golf? What's no. my ROI on going to the opera? They go, yeah, that was fun. And yet you're offering them something fun and they might make some money. Who knows? So yeah, yeah. It's, it's, all, it's all about how you look at it. Like, I, like I've said before with, you know, with being a film entrepreneur, there is a way to make money and, and make multiple revenue streams off of a film or multiple films uh, because there's been many, many case studies of people doing it. It's just thinking differently about how you know if you're looking at the movie to be your main revenue generator it could be a part of that revenue stream but it doesn't have to be you don't have to put all the pressure on it if you're smart i mean look it's it, george lucas said it very clearly the money's in the launch box idiots 
You know, like <laughs> it's true. Like they've made yeah, much yeah, more true. money licensing Star Wars than any money they've made in the box office. Have they made money in the box office? Of course. But do you know, I always, I always use this example. My friend works at Disney and I, and I, I asked them like, how much did Frozen, like what, what, what's going on with like the, the back end of Frozen? And he's like, dude, do you know the dresses that the little girls wear? Just the dresses, just the dresses that you buy for like 10 or $15 at the Disney store or wherever. They've made a billion dollars off of that, <laughs> off of the dresses alone. Not the lunch boxes, not anything else, not cartoon, just the dresses. And by the way, Frozen also made a billion dollars as a revenue stream from the film itself, but they make so much more money. Well, off of- they gross. They grossed a billion. Whether yes. I mean, I'm sure that the margin on those dresses is 99% once they're in the shop. Whereas yes. with movies, it's like. You know. But again, using the movie as a marketing strategy to sell other product lines and sell other and create other other revenue streams. It, it's a business. Look, it's the Hollywood's been doing it since Star Wars, basically. Before Star yeah. Wars, you know, it didn't, no one really did it. But Star Wars kind of started that genre, and now basically everybody, every studio, that is part of their marketing plan. So why can't you use that for independent filmmaking as well? Well, totally. And that also goes back to what we were saying before, because horror has, um, amongst the lowest marketing rates, uh, uh, merchandising rates, yes. it also has absolutely the lowest amount of money made from airlines and, and soundtracks and things like that. And so we were talking before about um, horror being the most profitable. Well, yeah, but we're not measuring merchandising. We're not measuring soundtracks, you know? And so... Um, mm. Yeah, it, it, it's amplifying your risk and and then all of these risks are fine to take if you know what you're taking but it's to think about what it would be and we, you're putting you are buying you're putting even more pressure on this on this lottery ticket because um okay sure if you water it down or you make it more television friendly maybe it's got a longer tail but if it doesn't the the core long-term value of a horror film might be its franchise ability it might be the idea of making two three four five mm-hmm. six others um or it is the opening weekend and, and the home end for the first or the VOD sale that you do for the first five years, something like that. That might be a small number of deals that might be able to be astronomically large for you. But after that, there's less. Whereas if you invent the next frozen, uh, or, uh, the, the example I always think of when I think of um, what frozen is for independent film is um, once. Have you seen once? Yeah. Yeah. That was an independent, yeah. the, the, the musician. Yeah. 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 <laughs> it's like, I don't know, 15 years ago. It's Irish film. Beautiful. Really low budget. Musical. If you haven't seen it, I highly recommend it. Yeah, it was Oscar nominated. Yeah. Yeah. It did so well and it deserves to. It's not the perfect movie. It's just really good. And especially considering the budget and it's a musical, like who does low budget musical? And uh, I don't have the numbers for it, but I certainly remember when I was in New York a few years ago, there was a Broadway show of it. And Mm -hmm. there was also uh, at least a few soundtracks that were being advertised Mm -hmm. on the subway. And so that's from an independent movie. Like, and they owned the songs. And so the song revenue would have been more than the box office should take that they took, I'm sure. And so it's okay. It's easier to make a franchise if you're Disney, but it doesn't mean it's impossible. Um, Oh no. I've got got tons of case studies, tons of case studies of of filmmakers making more money off of ancillary products than they do off the movie themselves and built and, and built entire empires around a film, a documentary or a feature or a group of feature films. Oh God, there's, there is a lot of, there are a lot of examples out there, but just people don't think this way. They just, it's not taught. It's not taught at, at all. 
Well, it's not appreciated. You know, people don't, um, because we are all people that run away to join the circus, the most sensible among us is, uh, actually, I'll give, I'll give you an example. So years and years ago, I was uh, I was going out with a lawyer and uh, I was I was chatting to her about what I'd done that day. And, I, and I'd actually been running a training course with a filmmaker over here called Chris Jones. And Chris Jones is the Gorilla Filmmaker's Handbook and really interesting guy. He runs the London Screen Artists Festival. And, the, and he and I had been running a course together during the day. And um, the setup of the course was that I was the sort of producery type, giving the sensible answers. And Chris was the more kind of dream big filmmaker. And it's, it's a reflection of our real selves. And Chris and I have got a nice dynamic and we get on well. So actually, worked out well and um i was uh, uh, having a date that evening with a lawyer and, and she said uh, what have you been up to and i was like oh well i've been running this course and and i'm uh, you know and i described what i just said and i'm the sensible one and she almost spat out her food and she was like what and she was and i was like what do you what are you confused by and she's like you're the sensible one and i'm like yeah she's i mean you you're, you're crazy you're like the wacky one <laughs> in my world like like and i was like no no oh, hold on we should talk about this because in my world i'm the boring one i'm the one that's you putting are. everyone towards fact mm-hmm. and like there aren't many people on the other end of me who are going no 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 steven's not going into enough detail you know like there's, there's aren't many people on the <laughs> other side and for her i was the craziest she could imagine like not in a kind of interpersonal way, like, hello, I'm Stephen, but just more like you were just teaching filmmakers and you don't know what you're doing and they don't know what they're doing. And they're just paying for a course and you're just running a course and they're just making things without business plans. And like, it, it was just like being the most sensible person in the circus still means it still makes you a circus performer. That's and so, <laughs> it was just, it's really stuck in my That's head. Like, awesome. She couldn't believe it. She couldn't believe it. Uh, you're you're still think, a carny, oh, sir. You're still a carny. Yeah. Exactly. And I love that, by the way. I don't, yes. I don't you know, that's all. You good. wear it with pride. Good for, good for her as well. Like, you know, if, if, if the most wacky lawyer is nowhere near the most boring filmmaker. And that's OK. Everyone's chosen the, the, the race they want to run in it and, and, and where they are in it. Mm-hmm. And I think that, that, that we have to remember that because film industry likes to pretend that nothing is knowable. It loves that um, William Goldman quote that yes. no one knows anything. Mm-hmm. But they forget the other half of that conversation, which is about um, no one person in the motion picture industry knows exactly what's going to work out. You know, it's a, every time it's a, a guess out of the gate and hopefully an it's, educated guess. Uh, and, um, and so that is, speaks partly to the fact that it's a team effort, but also to the fact that uh, it's not unknowable. It's just not entirely predictable. It has to be an educated guess. But to have an educated guess, you've got to be educated in some way. You've yeah. got to go out and find facts. And but then the, you've got to choose what to do. But the thing is this, though, but, you know, many businesses are educated guesses, you know, like, you know, Facebook, Google, Apple, like, you know, when you make a product, you don't know what the revenue is going to come back. You might have, you know, ideas, you might have um, numbers or statistics of what it could be. Um, it's just, it's a little bit more stable, but you know, when Apple put out the iPod, they had or the iPhone, they might've had a guess of what it was going to be, but they had no, they, they didn't know exactly the number. So there is always in, in business in general, you don't know exact numbers every time. Almost, almost, it's very rare that you do have that kind of information. If yeah. you do, then you could, then you're uh, an Oracle. Yeah. Well, I think also that filmmakers forget that. Because we, we we struggle to get control, we get struggle to get control of the creative parts of the, whether mm-hmm. it gets funded, whether it gets made, whether it gets seen. We try and win every battle, and we try and see every battle as a reflection of our expression or our freedom, freedom or our artistic self. And actually, there are some battles that you should be really keen to lose, or at least not care where they go. So, a good example for me is the poster. 
where filmmakers see it as the an extension of the film mm-hmm. and actually it's a piece of marketing materials like the person that invents the next kit cat or mars bar doesn't get to design the label and it doesn't matter what the label looks like as long as it honestly sells the product and people end up eating your product and so as long as people go and see your film and it hasn't been missold you shouldn't be in charge of the poster at all. You should get someone who knows about posters. Right. And you see so many filmmakers who are like, no, 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 I want to put all this on, or I want to design it, or whatever. Or like, no, 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 that's too, mm. um, I don't know what the word they'd use, but like it's too marketing, too commercial. And you're like, no, 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 no you, <laughs> you want to lose that battle. You right. want the person Same thing with trailers. Lose without selling them. Same yeah, exactly. thing with trailers. trailers exactly oh, I've seen filmmakers try to edit their own trailers, and I'm like, get a professional trailer editor who knows how to sell your your kind of movie that knows how to do promos who knows how to they're edit only trailers. trying to sell your movie they're not trying to secretly destroy your vision Ugh. at best they don't care about your vision it's the art like, it's the art and the ego it's the art and the ego at this point totally and, it, and actually uh, you know it's there are a few fringe cases where it gets really kind of like almost philosophically complicated like if the movie is being missold like if the poster is fundamentally oh, you, different you mean most like most hollywood movies got it yeah exactly well i mean missold <laughs> in comparison to most movies or like the trailer like i, I remember um, um, I won't say who, but I have a friend who was involved somewhere along this process. And uh, he was telling me about the the process of editing the King's Speech trailer. Mm-hmm. And the King's Speech itself has got a beautiful grade. It's sort of, because it's a historic film, it's slightly more muted colors. And mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I can't do justice to describe it, but it's a very particular kind of color. But it's it's muted. When they did the trailer, they regraded the film. And the argument uh, from the trailer point of view was, well, it's going to play amongst loads of other trailers and it's going to look dull. It's not going to work in this format. And obviously the director was less than pleased and in the end got, from what I understand, locked out of the edit suite for the trailer. And there is a fringe case where actually I can see both sides. I can see the marketeers saying, we're only trying to sell your movie. And the filmmaker going, no, 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 this is misrepresenting. You know, this is my movie you're, you're messing with. But in all other cases let the marketeers do their job because they're only trying to sell your movie. Um, right. And you just, what, what works in a 90 minute like immersion experience is mm-hmm. not what's going to work on a one sheet. It's a different thing. You know, and, and, and I, I love people who always use um, David Fincher or Stanley Kubrick as uh, examples of directors that have complete control of all the marketing. And I always like to point out, like, oh, you, you mean David Fincher? Uh, oh, the, the guy who's been in commercials for twenty odd years? You, you mean that <laughs> the guy? guy? Who's literally an expert at selling things. You mean you mean the guy? That guy? The guy who basically reinvented commercial directing in many ways? Uh, that that guy? Yeah, you know what? I'm gonna let him design a poster. I'm gonna <laughs> yeah, let David Fincher can do your poster. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh, you, you mean? Can't. Oh, you Stanley Kubrick? Oh, you mean one of the greatest geniuses that ever walked the filmmaking landscape? That guy? Oh him, yeah. Let let him understand that. Yeah, it's outliers again, isn't it? It's but but outliers. That, and they point out to outlier. But that's the thing, and it's the lottery ticket. Uh, it's either lottery ticket mentality where people think, you know, oh, I'm going to make a horror movie. Paranormal made two hundred billion dollars. I'm making a horror movie. It's a horror movie. I'm going to make money. Um, or it's outliers like that that they'll point to someone like David Fincher or Steven Spielberg or James Cameron. I'm like, dude, you're talking about giants. You're talking about one out of 10 million people. Like, you know, I always like to use the example of James Cameron because when James Cameron went to go make Avatar, the first Avatar, um, I asked people, I'm like, who else in the world could have done Avatar? And and people are like, what do you mean? I'm like, oh, Steven Spielberg. I'm like, no, 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 wait a minute. Who else 
could walk into Fox Studios, say, I need $500 million. I'm going to take the first $100 million to develop new technology that does not exist about a franchise that has not – it's not a pre, pre-existing franchise. So we're going to start something from scratch, and we're going to uh, – it doesn't really have any major star power in it. We'll have some faces of people we recognize, but it's not star power at all. And we're going to uh, – we're, we're kind of going to just kind of roll with it and see what we come up with. But I need a $500 And, and also check. we're going to release it in a format that most theaters don't have. Exactly. And we're going to release it in a format and we're going to – in a format that most theaters – at this point, don't have. Who else on the planet, (laughs) I'm being honest, I want you to answer the question, who else, what other filmmaker on the planet at that time, who would have been able to make that film? Who would have gotten that check? You know who the answer is? Everyone who's listening to this going, I could have done that. Yeah. (laughs) Because that's what's so good about filmmakers. (laughs) And even if they can logically, we all know like, yeah, no. Oh, it's easy. Oh, that was easy. I didn't have cash. I didn't have, I don't live in LA. Like other than that. Avengers Endgame. I could have done that. I'm like, <laughs> you couldn't have run the damn craft service table. Are you kidding me? Like it. The, the, the yeah. God, let's not get into this because we'll go down dreamers. a log. Which we, we, I like. We that. are That's- we are dreamers, and we have and and, and I, I I talk heavily about ego. We you know and how ego is is probably the biggest enemy of art and what we do as filmmakers because I've dealt with it all of my life and it's gotten me into lots and lots of trouble over the years. And that is exactly what you just said. Like I could have done that. That's complete and total ego, you know, unless it's maybe Chris Nolan sitting in the corner saying, well, I could have done that. Well, I don't know if Chris Nolan 10 years, uh, 20 years ago, however long ago, <laughs> um, 10 years or 12 years it, it ago. It doesn't work with, with Chris Nolan. Time doesn't apply. So That's true. Obviously, like we're 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 in we're in Chris Nolan world. You're absolutely right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you know, but there are but there wasn't anybody else in the world. Like so imagine being James Cameron where you're like, you know what? I'm literally the only human being on the planet who could do this. Seriously. Like that has yeah, that takes a whole career to get there, doesn't it? You know, it's, he's made money oh on every level. He I mean, the Terminator was a movie that was made for nothing and made a fortune and built a franchise. And then the other end of the spectrum, Titanic being the most expensive film of its time and making the m- most, most money. money. Like yeah. everything between the two. Like, I mean, look and look, look. Right now, um, Disney had to fudge the numbers of Avengers Endgame just to barely crack what Avatar did ten years or eleven years ago. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. like I can't wait to see these three, three or four new Avatar films he's going to have coming out. But anyway, let's get back on. Let's get back on to yeah. uh, the horror. I, the, I wanted the, to talk briefly about posters actually because I yeah. um, bringing it up before I um I was posters are really interesting because you know every movie's got a few maybe but certainly got one head headline poster and they contain so much information like if we were if we were studying semiotics or whatever we'd be like oh my god there's so much this single image is telling you about the movie a title right. star tone color uh, action all this sort of stuff and but actually there aren't many different types of poster and so i thought i'd measure this i thought it'd be really interesting i didn't do it for all horror films ever you'll be disappointed to hear no, I, mean, I only did the shocking. last 20 years oh well um, you know slacking i know exactly <laughs> uh you know what there, there was certainly a day where i'm like i'm gonna do it i'm gonna do it yeah, go but i it. didn't um I, the, the reason I, g- I gave in the end to myself was just that movie posters since photoshop have changed and so yes. it was not you're not comparing the same thing so mm-hmm. i don't know if i believe that but I sure why not it's very yeah. good rationale sir <laughs> um so yeah I, I looked at them and i i did it a few different ways i didn't because this was two or three years ago if i were doing this all over today i would probably try and do some 
clever kind of uh, AI-based recognizing of objects. I'm not quite sure if they're good enough yet to do it when movie posters, because movie posters have multiple elements going on. But the way I did this was by showing them to loads and loads of people on the Amazon Mechanical Turk, saying, what's in this, you know? Um, and then a lot of them I checked myself as well, and it took time to build systems. Um, but in the end, it came down to about eight different things that seem, seem to be on posters, whether it's a large face or a, a silhouette of a person or a scared woman. Scared man is not on there, by the way. There's a strong leader, but there tends to be men and women, men or women, whereas there's no scared man trope. Um, mm. But one thing I did want to mention, which I just, I was just a, a little tidbit that I really enjoyed. So I was building this system, trying to to get all this reliable data for all these different posters. And, and the various stuff on posters is subjective and sometimes data can be wrong. So I, t I showed each poster to a number of people and then I could look for, you know, I don't know, I can't even remember how many people I showed it to, but let's say five out of six people said that this is a school building and one said it's a shed. Well, first of all, we know it's a building and second of all, it's probably a shed, uh, probably mm -hmm. a school building. So, mm -hmm. but there was one question I asked when I knew there was a human on the cover on the poster i asked them whether they thought it was the hero or the villain because it doesn't matter if they're right or wrong because films can have plot twists it just matters whether you're selling it as this is the victim's experience or the here is or here is the threat and there was one film that every time i showed it to people got confusing answers the data was just all over the place and uh when i was doing it i wasn't looking at the names of the films i was using the names of the posters and they i had obviously i could look them up but it wasn't what it was and i was like what is this poster that keeps confusing everyone? And it was Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Mm -hmm. uh, and it basically, no one knows if it's the hero or the villain because it's both. Right. Um, of which, course. which I thought was kind of funny. funny. But, it, but almost in every other movie, you could tell whether it's supposed to be the hero or the villain. Now, what kind, now what kind of poster it, it does the best? That Did you do some sort of correlation where this kind of poster helped make, you know, a, a, a correlation with uh, box office returns? Well, it's tricky. There aren't enough films that you could do all of that because you need to do a bit of a regression analysis because there aren't that many films out there. I mean, there are mm -hmm. lots, but there, you know, we're talking, I can't remember, 10,000 or so. But then once you take down the ones, just to the ones you have uh, reasonable profitability stats, and then you split them by subgenre, and then you split them by po uh, poster tropes, you, mm -hmm. there's not enough there to be reliable, really. because. You know, some posters. I did. I did look at the correlations between the types of the tropes that you have and the type of movies. Um, so certain types of horror films are more likely to have what one type or another um, because that was relevant and that was interesting. But I couldn't do it for profitability. So, for example, um, horror comedies are more likely to have the lineup of people. Yeah, you know, three, four, five, Zombie six Land, right? Exactly. Yeah. Whereas romances have a large face on them. A large face was quite popular. Um, and so, yeah, you know, horror action films very rarely have a scared woman on the cover, um, whereas it's quite a big thing for uh, like dramas and stuff like that. So um, they all have different kind of things. Mostly it's about faces. It's about eyes um, being frightened, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, and you sometimes you can combine tropes, but they tend to look quite busy and quite um, complicated. Whereas what you really want is to have one simple just like this is what this poster is about. You know, it's about seeing an eye or a skull or as a hand you or, know, or a hatchet ground. or something like that. Exactly. Yeah. Or, or a building. And, and it largely it comes down to, are you telling on the poster? Are you telling the story of the victim or victims or are, are you telling the story of the threat? 
in and right. in some cases it would be like if it's a movie uh about uh a, you know the, the cabin in the Freddy. woods it's the yeah. cabin right yeah. or it's freddy or it's, it's freddy right exactly yeah or if it's about some unknown thing then you could have the victim uh like there being the person who's terrified um and sometimes it's about the hero or heroine you know like a lot of the resident <gasps> evil films or world war z has uh, yeah. the kind of hero pose you know the the poster that just comes to mind i think it's one of the more brilliant horror film posters of all time is jaws because hmm. it shows the threat and the victim but the victim doesn't know the threat's there so it's a tense it, you have a tension filled poster so you're actually creating suspense Absolutely. within the image of the poster which the entire movie is a masterclass in suspense um so it's if you, it doesn't take a lot it's a very simple uh, concept that that one concept alone and talking about posters and marketing the one thing we haven't talked about which is something very unique to the horror genre is star power it's not mm-hmm. needed it's not a needed thing in, in horror films and i'd love to hear what your thoughts are in your data on if you have a, a movie star of some sort versus nobodies or, or no name actors and how that ref- how that helps or hurts box office yeah, that's a good question. Um, so I'd say that you're right. Of all the genres, it's one of the ones that matters the least, even to something like animation, because you've got to get the parents in, if you want to call that a genre. But, you know, family animated films, you still need someone famous quite often. It certainly helps. Whereas with horror, your hero or your your famous thing is the concept. Mm-hmm. It is the idea, like the purge or saw or whatever. Um, that said, uh, it, you might want to put a star in it for almost insurance purposes. And what I mean by that is it might make you feel more confident. Maybe it motivates behavior a bit. No one's pretending that um, it is about those stars, but those stars might tip people over the edge and and allow people to be more confident. Um, And also, if you look at the way movies are sold nowadays, having somebody who's an eloquent marketeer for the movie be the star, look at what The Rock does, uh, or Tom Cruise, those people, they sell their movies. Like they are selling movies. And so arguably having a star that that can go on late night, who is an expert at, you know, saying how much they loved the script and that's why they got involved and their character is particularly interesting Mm -hmm, or mm -hmm. whatever, that might really help. So, Or someone with a large following or someone with a large social media following or something like that. Exactly. Although obviously it depends what their following is. Like I think uh, if they're not horror fans, like, Kardashian, I'm not sure. Like, I think that was what they were trying to do with Paris Hilton. In yeah, you read my mind. Stuff like yeah, that. it yeah. did work. Um, so I don't think it's as nearly as important as it used to be. Uh, sorry, uh, I don't think it's nearly as important as it is for um, uh, other genres, but it still can help. And also it might be that that's what gets it greenlit. So maybe that it does a different job. But, but, unlike, but unlike other genres, I mean, look, anytime you could put a star in a movie, do it. That's just a general general rule of thumb. If you have a, if you have the potential of putting a movie star or some recognizable face or bankable name in a movie, do it. Why wouldn't you? But it doesn't making of that movie does not it's not necessary. Like if you make an action movie to go international, you definitely need some sort of bankable star in it to make to to really hedge your bets. Um, same thing with comedy. Same thing with drama. Uh, family is a little bit different. You can maybe get away with family, as but but also if you're trying to sell like to Lifetime, some old you know some older TV actors 
you know, Dean Cain yeah. or things like that. People who, re- but they're recognizable faces in that genre and they've established themselves in that genre. But horror is one of those that you don't need it, obviously, because some of the most successful horror movies of all time don't have movie stars in them, like Paranormal and, Activity. And because the, 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 if you think about, I mean, I don't know what the right term for it is, but what's the thing about your movie? So the thing about Hobbs and Shaw, the, the movie that's just come out, yeah. is The Rock or Statham, and that's what it's about, or action, that's the thing. Mm-hmm. Um, with a drama that's just won loads of awards, it's quality, it's experience, you know, whatever. Uh, for horror films, it's the concept of the film. That will trump almost any star. Yes. Even, I mean, I... There, I mean, I Am Legend and World War Z, maybe they're different, but almost every other horror film with famous names, it's about the concept more than it is the names. Yeah, but World, Whereas, War, Z, but World War Z can't be made without Brad Pitt. Like, there's nothing yes. to justify a budget of that size for a zombie horror movie. It's not going to work. Correct? Exactly. But it's it's doing a different thing, isn't it? So right. It's, doing, it's, a, but, it's getting it greenlit. It's a kind of insurance. It makes everyone feel confident. And I'm sure it does help. I don't – I mean, obviously, unless you pick the wrong star, I don't think it's putting people off. But it's not having the transformative effect that it does in other genres. Um, right. And it's interesting you were talking about family films because family films ostensibly – you imagine they don't need any stars because it's kids and no one's famous to a kid, but it's the parents who drive them there and who decide, Oh yeah, I've heard of that name. Or, you know, think about Mr. Popper's penguins with um, Jim Carrey or mm-hmm. anything with Steve Martin or Eugene Levy or Eddie Murphy to some degree. Um, this is not about the audience. This is about the audience chauffeurs. Um, and the I, 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 at a certain, at a certain budget level, but like if you're dealing in the, half a million dollar or below oh, yeah, yeah, the world, totally, totally. then it does it. Yeah, of course. When you're, when you're talking about 15, 20, 30, $40 million, yes, absolutely. But at a million dollar or below budget, if you're selling it to Lifetime or Hallmark, uh, you know, and also selling it overseas, you know, Dean Kane has a lot of juice there, you know, or, or those kind of, you know, or uh, the million of, um, you know, X Melrose place or Beverly Hills, uh, 90210 stars who are or made a, a career out of making those kind of films, then that makes a lot more sense. And they're much more affordable as well than a bigger star. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, I was yeah, going yeah, to ask you, we were talking about this a little bit earlier, but I think this is something unique to the horror genre is um, those ancillary products, those T-shirts and, and hats and mugs and uh, action figures and things like that. The horror genre is a unique genre because their that audience that niche wants those products. They go after those products. They buy those products in larger quantities than people who just consume a drama or a comedy. You know, for you to buy a, a T-shirt about a comedy, it's got to be pretty epic. But a horror fan will buy a, a horror T-shirt if it's got a cool image on it, and it doesn't have to be as big of a deal as uh, the other genres are. So there is a lot of potential for generation of ancillary product lines within the horror genre because they like to buy things. And also, arguably too, physical media is a much bigger selling point for horror genre, uh, for horror audiences than it is for other uh, for other um, genres because horror audiences love to collect. They love to have the physical Blu-ray DVDs or even VHSs. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you're right. And you're definitely right. There are other genres where it's far less successful. But I would say that we're still operating on a very small level. Now, Niche. if you're making a, 
Yeah, exactly. If you're making um, a very low budget film, actually, that's fine. If you look at how um, creators on YouTube or musicians, Mm -hmm. how they can survive by, I can't remember what, there was some number that was out there, like if they sell one t-shirt a year and a concert every two years, they'll make money or they have a Mm -hmm. Patreon with a certain number of... uh, Yes, it's a thousand, if you have a thousand true fans is um, uh, that article by... um, uh, the guy who who was the co-founder of Wired magazine. If you have a thousand yeah, true fans, yeah. If you have a thousand true fans and they each pay you ten dollars uh, a month, you you make a living as an artist. Absolutely, it, and I think that that can work on the on the lowest level. That doesn't scale very well, but that's not necessarily a problem because what what's the point of scale? If you're making correct. the content you want to make with an correct. audience who love what you do, and you're paying giving giving yourself a good income as a person, it doesn't matter if you're not making thirty million dollar movies because you know you might be able yes. to give you more scale, but it's going to give you other problems. Um, and, and that's something I've, I've I always tell people all the time is like if you're able to do what you love, make a living doing it, and provide a service or of be of service to an audience that wants to consume your content and you're, you're, you're able to make a living? I mean, isn't that the dream? Like you, exactly. don't need, you don't need to live in the Hollywood Hills. You don't need to buy into the, 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 the story that Hollywood sells so beautiful. They're, they're really good at selling the sizzle, but they're not real good at selling that steak. And, and they <laughs> know that it's not, it's not good but in the sense that, you know who doesn't want to live in Hollywood? Everyone who lives in Hollywood, like everyone because <laughs> they have to be like, they're not happy. You don't want their dream like this, this fantasy that they're selling you, they don't like, and they're the ones selling it. Um, right. Well, going back to what you're saying about licensing and stuff like that. Yeah, I think this is something that bizarrely, I think, scales better on a smaller level. Yes. So if you are making that tiny little film, well, relatively speaking, I don't wish to diminish it, but, you know, like a small thing for hardcore fans. Actually, all this ancillary income is your business. Like the right. film is is the thing. But on the larger scale, it's the other way around. So um, I won't I can't say what film this is, but there is a, a horror. I spoke to a lot of producers of various different levels for this and one of them gave me some details uh, about uh, their horror film so this is a, a hollywood horror film that was budgeted between about 25 and 50 million i'm being deliberately vague so people can't figure sure. it out um made over the last sort of five ten years and th- the real income that they'd got amortized over the 10 years that they thought the film would take the the highest amount of money they got from licensing was some a video game it's about a hundred thousand yep. dollars Mm-hmm. And then after that, there was a novelization. They got about $80,000. Clothing was about $60,000. Uh, figurines, like scale figures, about 45000 And then comic books, about thirty-five. Toys, next. Then posters, publishing. The calendar brought in under ten grand, mm-hmm. uh, And the collectibles were under ten grand. So that's not nothing, but that's a big movie. And uh, that's combined not half a million dollars for the entire movie. And obviously that's going to be cut up by by all the other people that are involved. And so it's not that that's not money, good money. It's just that it's not good money for that film. Whereas if you can manage to get that same kind of involvement, but your core film is unbelievably cheap. and A hundred thousand bucks. Yeah, it's a hundred thousand exactly, dollar movie. And the number of people you're splitting it by is tiny, mm-hmm. then, then you're doing very nicely. Um, it's all about how you position and how you set up your project and how you set up the business that you're starting to create. As as a film entrepreneur, you have to think about it as an entrepreneurial filmmaker. So all those numbers sound fantastic, but not for a $25 million to $50 million movie. It sounds like chump change. But- yeah, exactly. And I, so I did an average. I got a load of movies. I can't remember how many it was. Uh, about 20-odd Hollywood horror, horror movies over a 10-year period. And the average of them, uh, they got about – they grossed about $40 million uh, box office internationally. Mm-hmm. That's kind of like crossing the movies. 
47 from home entertainment which would be a bit less nowadays because that was dvd and stuff like that but um television was about 35 million but merchandising was a quarter of a million so Mm -hmm. that's what one percent of the box office gross and that's not nothing but when you look at a hundred thousand dollar movie it's not going to be one percent it's going to be a lot higher especially if you build it with that in mind if you say to your audience look i'm gonna blog about this i'm gonna share this uh everyone who uh supports me will get along this journey um Oh, one thing, I just uh, while I remember this, this is something that someone told me a while ago, which I thought was really smart. If you're doing a crowdfunding campaign for a movie, mm-hmm. um, and in this situation you would be because $100,000 with a big, you know, small committed audience, you don't need to go anywhere else for the money. Uh, the one thing you should never give away as a reward is the movie. Mm-hmm. Everything else but the movie. Because what will happen is, as long as you're giving them good stuff that they're happy with, whether it's T-shirts or experiences or behind the scenes, whatever it is, if you don't give them the movie, but you say to them a few weeks before it comes out on iTunes, hey, it's coming out in two weeks. It would mean the world to me if you want to buy it, that you buy it in the opening weekend. It's up to yes. you. Yes. What happens is if you can get it in the top 10 mm-hmm. of the subgenre or whatever, mm-hmm. it will do massively more business in the in the coming weeks. So you're kind of gaming the algorithm, not gaming it because obviously algorithms get cleverer and cleverer, but it is it does have a big weekend um, on iTunes. Whereas if you've given it away, your most committed fans who've proven they'll spend money for you can't buy it, won't buy it. Oh, I mean, it, it literally just happened to me with this podcast, with the, the Film Entrepreneur podcast. I literally just launched it a few weeks ago and I focused all of my energies to everybody to come out and like, Hey guys, go check out my, my podcast, you know, subscribe, do all, you know, and, and leave me reviews and all that stuff. And because I did that, I showed up on new and noteworthy, which is a top 20 new podcasts of all of my, uh, of all of iTunes for TV and film. So that elevates me to a higher level. Same thing would happen with the film, with an, uh, with uh, iTunes or actual Apple TV or whatever they're calling it now, uh, where if you're able to generate all those pre-sales, even if you're doing it two months before, all those pre-sales count on day one. And if you're able to just run up to the top of the, of the charts, then all of the people who don't know who the heck you are just look at the top 10 and like, oh, who's this guy? Boom, you've got more sales. So absolutely, without question. So there's loads more in this horror report, and um, you know it took about a year to do, or not full time, but it, it. How many pages? It took time, two hundred and something. Uh, also, I cut <laughs> it down as well. You know, like I'm not known for brevity, but certainly there were bits where I was like, okay, it's getting a bit long. Wow, um, wow. <laughs> you know, I just well, where's the natural point to stop? Like once you've gone to a hundred oh, pages, no. where oh, do no. you stop? No, there's no, um, there's, there's no question. I mean, you could just keep going. Like I just asked him, like, well, how about if you made posters and what what posters are for box office? And like, you could just go, yeah, yeah. you can go forever because they're very interesting, inform, very very inform, interesting uh, information uh, without question. Um, and then also, did you find that because uh, I kind of I saw this in the report, I want just to touch on it. Did you find that horror films are consumed more on physical media? than there are on SVOD or theatrical, theatrical and physical media versus uh, just SVOD. Yeah. So this is something that Bruce Nash and I found uh, in a project we did for the American film market. So Bruce Nash uh, is the genius behind the numbers, which is like um, a rival to box office mojo. And it's 
really good, really accurate. And Bruce is a really nice guy, and he does a lot of work in this area. He does a lot of comp analysis and stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he's really switched on to, to the financial side of the industry. And he and I have been working together for the last three or four years uh, doing articles every summer for the American film market. And um, that's where the first-time director's article came from. And um, we did this... We, we, he's got all sorts of data on sales across different platforms. Uh, obviously, he's got box office for theatrical, but he's also got home home entertainment on different formats, rental, uh, and also iTunes and um, other like Voodoo and things like that. So we we thought, okay, let's let's see what's going on there. And the, every way we looked at it, every way that we crunched the numbers, we we discovered that horror is doing unbelievably poorly on itunes and on Mm -hmm. on sort of svod and i it's tricky because as as always uh vod is such a black box that we Mm -hmm. just don't know and it's so frustrating in so many different ways um uh but i wonder whether because it used to do so well on on vhs but it was also a time where it was kind of um forbidden slightly not literally banned obviously there were some but you know fundamentally it was something that you were kind of ashamed of watching and and nowadays it's absolutely not people are quite proud of horror and happy with horror and things Mm -hmm. and and i wonder how the medium is changing the audience patterns and and an example i'd give you is is in a different field but the rise of the kindle and the success of 50 shades of gray are not unconnected because who the who's going to sit on a train or a bus reading what everyone knows is a pornographic novel about a woman being slowly beaten up by a rich man like no one's going to read that um they shouldn't read it for other reasons it's oh it's it's a horribly poorly written and don't even get me started on the twilight you know the batman (laughs) did the thing to the nice lady anyway um, (laughs) i've just spoiled the plot for many of you um but the thing is if you read it on your kindle uh no one knows what you're reading other than you're constantly licking your lips or whatever but like it's and i think that had um 50 shades of gray come out 10 years prior to that it wouldn't have done nearly as well and so those things have come together it's your forbidden thing and i think the reverse is happening uh for horror in the sense that getting the vhs and renting it or buying it was actually sort of a badge of honor and it was sort of slightly uh under the not quite under the counter but it was private it was personal and it was for you and your friends or whatever whereas nowadays um the way people are around horror and the way the formats have changed and things like that horror doesn't seem to do nearly as well um i don't think people have lost their ability to be scared i don't think people don't want to watch horror it's just it's difficult to measure how the medium changes the message well Um, yeah i mean mean, it's kind of like with porn i mean you know porn was in a theater before and a lot of people didn't consume porn because they didn't want to go into a theater and then the second it came out on vhs and home movies then all of a sudden an explosion happened in the pornographic industry and i think you're right it is a reverse for horror films and svod at this point yeah the box office figures for porn are through the floor yeah like and, and, and <laughs> yeah i don't think anyone's interest in porn has waned as a society no. um, and so no. <laughs> i think that's kind of important to remember so i mean but it's it's staggeringly small horror on on itunes and uh it's it's actually if you look at it i don't think um itunes doesn't have sort of a big horror section it doesn't really do mm-hmm. horror and, and amazon again, either amazon doesn't do, amazon has, has a lot of horror films too but it's different it's just yeah and also we don't know how much it is down to apple you know i'm sure apple have been quite restrictive about what kinds of apps mm-hmm. you can create and you mm-hmm. can't 
you know, you can't legally get an app that is pornographic or too horrific or whatever on your uh, iPhone, whereas I'm sure you can on Android uh, and also you can via a browser. And so I don't know how much this is a sub- subjective um decision that is being influenced by sort of being pushing them down or not promoting them i don't know how much the medium is changing it and i don't know whether people are actually getting their horror elsewhere and certainly watching a horror film on a vhs was probably quite scary whereas now with 4k tellies and 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 all this sort of i wonder whether that changes it and actually makes the theater a scarier place to watch it i i don't know i all, all Bruce and I could come to was the sort of we're absolutely confident that horror is doing far poorer on video on demand than it was doing on VHS and DVD. And as to why and what that means and things, like, I don't know. And also, I don't know. I don't know how much Netflix is paying for horror, but I would imagine it's low because it's it feels niche in the sense that. Um, so I'm not a massive fan of romantic comedies. I don't mind them, but I, I'm not a massive fan, but I, I'm not actively against them. Whereas there are a lot of people who are actively against horror, whether it's because they've got children or because they're nervous or whatever it would be. So when you're buying um, content for Netflix or Amazon Prime or whatever, maybe you're not thinking what do people love. You're maybe thinking what do people not hate. Right. And and that's and but also now there's like Shudder and, and a couple of other SVOD uh, platforms that are completely dedicated to horror films because it is such a niche kind of thing. Uh, and and why not show every single kind of horror film that you like as gross or not gross but as gory as you want, um, or as much nudity as you want? And this is what we do. So Shutter is kind of like the Netflix for horror films at this point. And I've, I've talked to so many filmmakers who are trying to get deals with with um, with Shutter, uh, just trying to get their film on SVOD because they're they they're actually paying and they actually make money with their with their horror films. So the whole the whole landscape of SVOD is. Is so chammy. Now we got Disney Plus coming. Apple TV is throwing their hat in the ring. You know, it, it's getting it's getting out of hand. <laughs> There's so many. I even have a streaming service for God's sakes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I haven't got one yet. I'll have to pick one up when I go. You got to pick store. one up. I mean, it's the coolest thing. Everyone's got one. <laughs> you know, maybe I have got one. Maybe I don't realize it. I should just Google my name and find out if I have one. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I, on the um, landscape, you're right. It was it was easier when there was only one or two platforms, and you could get all your movies there. But as a consumer, that's not good in the long term. You know, we want to have competing services that we that evolve and, and compete for our dollars. You know, that's um, in the big picture. That's good. Uh, mm-hmm. Whether it will work out that way, I don't know. And certainly, I don't look forward to rather than paying nine ninety nine for Netflix, I'm now paying nine ninety nine to. 10 different companies that doesn't interest me and um, but you know cable was a lot more expensive you know the the but we're getting uh, to that but we are getting to that point where it's now getting almost equal because disney plus is coming out so i have kids and i'm getting disney plus and also they have marvel and star wars and and you know all the other brands that they own everything so that's a good it seems like a good roi for the money because you're going to have access to and also they have Fox too, for God's sakes, they own everything. Um, so they have all of these things. Netflix is a good value. And then if you're a horror fan, um, you know, Shudder is a great value for them. But I, I, it's starting to get to the point where like, you know, I think they just closed down DC Universe. Uh, so that was a whole streaming service dedicated to just the DC Universe, which I had no idea that. How, I didn't even know that existed. Exactly. I, mean, I would have actively avoided it, but it turns out I passively avoided it. So. You passively avoided it. But the point is that that just closed down. Um, and I'm like, I don't know what that – and now Warner Brothers is coming out with their own streaming service. 
Uh, Paramount, I think, is thinking about doing something as well. Universal's got one. Universal's got one in the in the works. So, like, at a certain point, you're like, I'm not going to pay for all this, guys. You know, like, I'm I'm just not. Well, are you though? Because the thing is that what one of the interesting things, one of the reasons that Netflix um, had such a poor when their earnings um, statement came out a week or two ago, and there was a big drop in their stock price. One of the reasons was that it looks like they're evolving from being uh, what was effectively an essential service for many people. Like it was okay, you need to have this because there are movies, mm-hmm. and they're now becoming hit driven. They, they need a Stranger Things, and that's the the HBO model. HBO needs Game of Thrones, and if you look at the unsubscribe rates, actually someone did this. If you look at Google Trends yeah. for the the phrase unsubscribe HBO and correlate it with when Game of Thrones finished, it was yeah, of course. massive. Of course. So that's a more risky mission because you're going from just needing co- to have content. Oh, we've got lots of content to needing to have particularly good content. But as a consumer, I kind of want that. I want them to chase after my dollars. And and Amazon just announced that as well. They're going to try and be more hit focused and it may produce you know, lowest well, common have- denominator, big dumb movies, but it might also produce stuff that people actually want to watch. I mean, look at the, I mean, the Irishman, uh, Scorsese's yeah. new film just came out. It's coming out soon on Netflix. I mean, it, it's, I think Netflix is here to stay until Apple buys them. Um, <laughs> or, uh, but it's, it's an interesting landscape. It, it's going to be very interesting moving forward as an independent filmmaker and, 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 and getting your movies out there and horror for sure. Uh, is going to be interesting to see how this landscape continues. But it is horror, unlike any other genre, is very, very um, unique in the sense that it, it, it like you said, it, they're willing to give chances to to films more than other genres. Uh, it doesn't matter about budget. Doesn't matter about stars. They want to buy product. They want to consume. Uh, they want to consume the and view these things on physical media. You know, they're 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 very you know, small microcosm. They're, they're their own little world. Uh, horror films and horror fans. And I mean, I've been to. Uh, have you ever been to a horror convention? No, I don't think. If I don't like horror films, I can't imagine. The I was action version my would work for me. my first my first short film I did. A lot of people thought it was a horror film, but it was just an action film in a really creepy place. And but a lot of horror fans loved it because it was such a creepy, you know, vibe. So I just went along with it. I'm like, okay, cool. It's a horror film. Sure, <laughs> why not? And so I would go to horror conventions where I would and I was introduced and I would sell my DVD there. I would sell my wares there. I would sell my other ancillary products. And uh, I did that a handful of times when I first was starting out. And I saw what horror conventions were like. And it's it's they're very passionate. It's kind of like uh, you know hardcore comic book fans. They're very that's passionate. So, that's so funny. That's such an Alex story. Because I thought you were going to go, yeah, I went to this convention and it's really interesting being a consumer no, and wandering around. No. And you're like, yeah, I went to this convention and I was selling things and I had a stand and I made money. Of course. Like, yeah, of course you did. Yeah, of, of course, course did. I did. So I have to stay on brand, sir. I have to stay on brand. <laughs> so I want to ask you, uh, I want to ask you, what's the biggest thing you learned by putting this whole report together? Uh, that's a good question. I think I learned that there's a lot more under the surface than people give credit for. So I think there were so many topics where I was like, wow, there are patterns, but there are complexities to it. And I hadn't heard other people talking about them. And I, I'm not willing to, I'm not suggesting I've you know, found things no one else has. But certainly I you would have thought it with this many films being made, with the internet being what it is, a lot of this stuff would already be well known, discussed and incorporated into the work. And it's absolutely not. And so uh, I was kind of the big picture was just how uh, 
filmmakers aren't really paying attention to, in this sort of rational, smart way mm, no. to achieving what they define as their goals. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I was kind of surprised. I, I, it almost looks to me like, given the amount of data we already have, horror films should have been figured out a lot more than they are. The way that Disney seems to have figured out how to make money. Uh, mm -hmm. they horror filmmakers don't seem to be they either don't know this or they're not caring i can't tell but um yeah uh, I, I, yeah i think well i think filmmaker independent filmmakers in general don't a lot of times don't care I, and and I, and i don't mean that in a bad way i just think that's just something that's not in their mind it's so difficult in their mind to get a movie made let alone thinking about how to market sell it or make money with it is almost something afterthought they think of the art mm. and they don't think of the business. Uh, and I think horror has a, it's, it, I don't know, it's a lot, it's still a little bit of a wild, wild west, you know, out of all the genres. Which is nice because like yes. you said, it, it's, it's for the fans and yes. it's something where your interpretation is really important. It's not like Disney where you just need, or Avatar where you need to be in the right place at the right time with the right money and the right history. Actually, it's a lot more open than almost any other genre. Yeah, and 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 you can have a lot of fun with it. I mean, Spielberg started off his career making horror movies, you know, from mm -hmm. Jaws and then uh, working on Poltergeist and 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 those kind of films, those kind of seminal films. Uh, you know, it, you have a lot of fun scaring people. I mean, you can really have a lot of fun, and it doesn't have to be super gory or a lot of nudity. That's one genre, but paranormal, like you know, paranormal ghost stories. Jesus, that's scary as hell. You know, there's so many different kinds of sub genres within the horror that you, as an independent filmmaker, can just have a lot, a lot of fun with. Um, and now I have to ask you this. What the heck's next for you, man? What's the next big opus you're working on? Well, uh, <laughs> I can't talk. I can't talk about it. I can't talk about it. <laughs> no, 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 no. no. I, I can't. I, I don't know. Um, no, I, I, I'm trying to. I'm trying to work out how it's going to, I can be useful to the film community because I've been writing these articles every week and I intend to keep doing it. I really enjoy it, but I feel like there's another thing that I should be doing to be helpful in some way. And I can't work out what it is. Um, so this report, when I was doing it, I thought, ah, oh, this might be a really interesting way I could help where it's a pay what you want model, meaning that most people won't pay will pay the minimum, which is a pound. Some will pay more. And if that makes sense, uh, economically, then I can keep doing that for all the different genres and things like that. It has done well, but not well enough for that to be the obvious thing to do. So it's not going to be in this sort of long form. And I also wonder whether a 200-page report as a PDF is the way people want to engage with this. So mm. I'm thinking of running some live courses and doing some other ways to allow people to engage with the information. And um, yes. if anyone has any suggestions or anything, please let me know. Um, I've got an event in... Um, New York, uh, in, on the 20, I don't know, something of mm -hmm. uh, October. When I find the date, it's a Saturday. Uh, it's a team I'm teaming up with NYU and their production lab to do a one day event, uh, around independent film and stuff like that. Um, by the time this comes out, uh, I'll know a lot more like the exact date. I just mm -hmm. can't remember. And I will tell Alex and I'm sure he'll put it in the show notes or push it out there. Um, and if you're, if you're interested, uh, when to hear about hearing more, go onto my site, which is stephenfollows.com and sign up for the mailing list or drop me a line and say, Hey, what's the latest. And, um, yeah, I, if you've got any ideas for what I should do next or whether it's a study for the blog or whether it's a format thing, you know, do more reports or do more live courses, talk to me about it because, I haven't figured out. I'm going to keep doing the blog, but I haven't figured out what the next big thing is. 
Um, yeah, so I think, yeah, I think core, I think coursework and workshops would be a really good way to to interact with this information because a two hundred page report is a lot to, to to digest. But sitting down for two or three hours and 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 listening to a workshop or, or taking a course uh, about this kind of stuff m- makes a lot more sense. I think uh, that's the way I would want to consume this stuff because for me to sit down and read a two hundred page report is 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 rough for me. <laughs> but I still love it. <laughs> yeah, well, no, I, I totally understand. I mean, as, as I was saying, I do a lot of stuff with, well, I have done a lot of stuff with Chris Jones, and he wrote the Guerrilla Filmmaker's Handbook, which is this huge, like, the second edition sort of Bible size, and then the mm. third edition was Bible width, uh, Bible depth, but wider and taller. And um, he also runs Guerrilla Filmmaker's Masterclasses, and I said to him once, who are these different people who are re- reading the book, or are they the same people? Or what? And he said, yeah, people want to, it's a mix. People want to engage with information differently. And um, I totally understand that. And I thought about that. And I thought about how I've gone on courses where I could have just read about something or I've bought a book where I could have Googled it because I want it in a different way and I want a different level of depth. So mm-hmm. if you, uh, as as li- as a listener listening to this thinking, you know what, that's that's exactly right. I don't want it in this form. Drop me a drop me a mail. Tell me how you do want it, because ultimately, what I'm trying to do is help filmmakers, and I'm trying to help people make their film by whatever whatever they decide is important. You know, this this story, this genre, this way of doing it. I don't mind, but I want to support that. But I I'm still working out how to get it out of my head into theirs uh, and into yours. So now I have a, a few questions I ask all of my film entrepreneur guests. Um, what advice would you give a film entrepreneur starting a project? I think know why you're doing it. So you can make films for all sorts of different reasons. And I think uh, amongst the top reasons would be you're making it for fun. You're making it for experience. You're making it for exposure. You're making it for money. Um, or there's something else that you just, you know, there's, you're making it for the art, let's say. Mm-hmm. Uh, of those five reasons, each of them have different next steps and they have wildly different endpoints. And I think you have to know why you're making it because then if you're offered a load of money to do something you don't want to do, uh, you'll know whether to take the money or not or mm-hmm. you know what your expectation should be and what, how you should pitch it to collaborators and investors and whoever. So I think know why you're doing it really sit down and think about it and and work out what the number one priority is because i think you can probably achieve that but only if you know what it is and you're willing to put it ahead of other goals now what is the biggest lesson you've learned from building uh your company your own company your own businesses uh you can't do anything by yourself or you can but it's exhausting and hard to do <laughs> tell me about you, you it a, yeah i know you, you need a team and the, and i i'm very very lucky that in my i used to have a company that i ran by myself and i now co-run it with a business partner and honestly we we wish there were three of us um as a trio because it would be um that you know if they had in particular that third person had experiences we don't that would be great and i think that learning learning to delegate learning to be vulnerable and open it up and also to attract interesting people who you think can add something new uh it's it's not a natural skill because you you presumably have started to do everything yourself because you can't find somebody else which means you end up producing your own movies even though you want to direct star write whatever and you've got to learn to let go of some of that control and allow other people to do it badly maybe but or not badly but not as well as you would because that allows you to focus on other things and i think that's a really hard lesson to learn. And mm. yeah, if you can do it, you can achieve so much more, mm-hmm. have more fun. And also it's nice to be with other people. Uh, and especially when the world doesn't understand what you're doing. 
and your parents don't understand what you're doing and your partner doesn't understand what you're doing. It's nice to have a business partner that goes, yeah, no, I know. I know it failed, but it was still very good, wasn't it? And you're like, ah, thank you. Anyway. <laughs> you get me. Yeah, cellmates. Uh, you know, yeah. Cellmates, I love it. <laughs> that's a great, that's great. Um, now, what did you learn uh, from your biggest business failure? Hmm. What worries me is I haven't learned it, whatever it is. Um, I think um, there, in our industry, uh, there is a massive amount of delusion that needs to go on. And in a good way, I mean, maybe I should find a different word other than delusion, but, you know, self-belief or or not listening to the facts. And mm. that is great. And that should carry on. However, there are some realities that you know are going to happen. You know, you know, you've got that invoice in, uh, to pay in, in three weeks it's, and you've got no income face up to it now you know talk to people go to that person and say look i know it's not due yet but i don't have the money what can we do how can i figure it out um rather than waiting and putting your head in the sand and i think um those two things believing in yourself and also facing up to reality feel like they run completely counter but i don't think they actually do if you manage to get them done right um and i think about being honest and and trying to face up to this inevitable thing or at least maybe it's not inevitable but it's likely actually dealing with it now is usually much better than dealing with it later mm-hmm. you know if you go to someone who's expecting i mean like if you're expect if you're owed some money and and way before it's overdue the person comes to you and says look i know you're going to hate me for this but i'm i'm struggling can you give me a bit of leeway or can i pay you in installments you're not going to like it but you're going to be much more up for it whereas if you're expecting a big payment on thursday and you thursday comes and nothing happens and then friday comes nothing happens monday nothing happens you're already angry and then they go oh yeah by the way i don't have the money you've your expectations has completely changed so i think acknowledging when these bad things which sometimes happen are inevitable and facing up to them sooner rather than just ignoring them they never go away Never, 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 never. Now, in your opinion, what is the definition of a film entrepreneur? Well, I mean, if we're being pedantic about this, it's not a real world. So you, it, it, it is, a, it is a real word, sir. I, I, I've, <laughs> I've trademarked and coined it, sir. So yes, it yes, is. That, you can't trademark a word. That's not how words work. You can. Tra- anyway. <laughs> the very fact that you trademarked it proves you don't you know, that it's not a word. Uh, <laughs> Okay, an entrepreneurial oh, filmmaker, sir. What is the definition yeah. of an entrepreneurial filmmaker? <laughs> you son of a! <laughs> this was going so well. It was going um, so well. <laughs> I think. Okay, all jokes aside, I genuinely think that there's real value in realizing that you're an artist in a business world, or at least that there's compromises to be made between them. And producers of all the jobs are the ones that have to sit with one foot in art and one foot in commerce. And if you as a independent filmmaker or as someone who is producing your own film content, if you don't have a producer that will do all that for you and let you be a sheltered artist, which by the way, no one has, uh, then you've got to fess up to some of it in the same way that you know how to pay taxes or know how to pay your rent, or you know how the, the washing machine works because not because you want to, but because the alternative is pretty crappy and you're not protecting yourself. So I think even if you feel like, um, uh, business isn't what you choose to do. You are stepping up and saying, yeah, I get that this is something that's necessary. So I think it's about maturity. I think it's about seriousness. And I think it's about protecting the artist inside you to actually live and continue to make a, a long-term career in something you love rather than trying to ignore things and do it once and burn it. So I, yeah, I think it's it's a real admirable place for an artist and filmmaker to be, to realize, you know what, 
this is something that's important to the world and important to the longevity of what I want to do. That's awesome. Now, Stephen, this it's has a- been an epic, epic conversation, as we both knew it would be. <laughs> We're an hour and 45 I- minutes in already, I think. I can't believe it's so short. I know. Um, <laughs> I know we could keep talking forever. You're one of those guests that I could just sit down and we just like, I, honestly, like the first 30 minutes, I didn't ask one question. It was all just literally like, I have a list of questions I was going to ask. Not one question was asked, I think, in the first 30 minutes of our conversation because we were just riffing. So um, we should do a podcast together, like, you know, the Stephen yeah. and Alex show. <laughs> if you want to, if you want that, write in. Email Alex, not me. Um, he's the one that would do all the marketing anyway. So let's be that's honest. true. That's uh, true. I did it stats. Um, yeah, right in. Let's let's get that going. Stephen, man, thank you again so much for for being uh, so straightforward and for all the great work you're doing for the film community, man. I really appreciate it. And thanks for dropping the knowledge bombs on the tribe today. Oh, it's my pleasure. And thank you so much for all the work you do and also inviting me on because um, this is something that I'm really passionate about talking about. And it's really nice to know that through you, I can reach all sorts of other filmmakers who'd be able to use these insights and findings on their own films. That's really exciting. That's why I do what I do. Thank you, brother. All the best. Bye-bye. I want to thank Stephen for being on the show and just all the knowledge that he was able to give us with this report and his independent film report and all the work that he does over at his website, stephenfollows.com, is remarkable. So, Stephen, thank you so much for the hard work you're doing for uh, all of us, the independent filmmakers out here. So thank you again so much, Stephen. If you want to get a link to the horror report and download it for free, head over to indiefilmhustle.com forward slash 359 for the show notes. I have links to his website, the report, and anything else we spoke about in this episode. Now, before we go, I have an announcement, and this is the single biggest question I've been asked over the course of the last year. Alex, when is your feature film on the corner of Ego and Desire going to be released? We want to watch this movie that you keep talking about, and I've been talking about it so long, and it's also in the book that's coming out, Rise of the Film Entrepreneur. I talk a lot about it in that book as well. Well, guys, we have a release date. January 21st, 2020. And it's about three days away or three days before Sunday, something like that, which uh, is uh, coincidental. I didn't plan that, of course. But uh, it will be available on Amazon, iTunes, and on Indie Film Hustle TV. And if you decide to watch it on Indie Film Hustle TV, you will also get some bonus stuff that you can't get anywhere else, which is uh, behind the scenes of footage about how we were making it as well as the director commentary track where I will go into scene by scene and explain to you how I was doing what I was doing in the scene and how we were able to get certain shots and performance things and a little bit of a little bit of trivia about how we were able to put together an entire feature film at the Sundance Film Festival, shooting it at the Sundance Film Festival while the Sundance Film Festival is going on in four days or total about 36 hours of actual production time by guerrilla filmmaking the entire thing with a three-man crew. So January 21st, 2020, Amazon, iTunes, and Indie Film Hustle TV. Thank you guys for listening, and you will have another Halloween-themed episode later this week, either Thursday or Friday, depending on when I can release it. And we're going to get into the nuts and bolts of a, of a scary film, but also how we're selling that scary film. But we'll get into that later. Thank you guys so much. As always, keep that hustle going. Keep that dream alive, and I'll talk to you soon. 
Thanks for listening to the Indie Film Hustle podcast at IndieFilmHustle.com. That's I-N-D-I-E-F-I-L-M-H-U-S-T-L-E.com. Your Total Wine & More store is ready to serve you with our always low prices on an incredible 8,000 wines and 2,500 beers. Want it today? Try our same-day delivery or contactless curbside pickup at TotalWine.com. Whether you're grabbing your favorite beer or pouring a glass to enjoy an evening on the deck, Total Wine & More has you covered. Visit any of our 12 stores in Northern Virginia. Your Total Wine & More store is ready to serve you with our always low prices on an incredible 8,000 wines and 2,500 beers. Want it today? Try our same-day delivery or contactless curbside pickup at TotalWine.com. Whether you're grabbing your favorite beer or pouring a glass to enjoy an evening on the deck, Total Wine & More has you covered. Visit any of our 12 stores in Northern Virginia.